Welcome to the Natural Health Rising podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Smith, Certified Functional Diagnostic Nutrition Practitioner. I'm here to deliver you weekly episodes where you will hear conversations with health experts and solo episodes about functional medicine and all things holistic health. My goal is to provide you with the knowledge and tools you need in order to help you rise to your healthiest, happiest self. Welcome to episode 15 of the Natural Health Rising podcast. And in this episode, I had the pleasure of having an amazing conversation with Dr. Miles Nichols. So Dr. Miles Nichols is a functional medicine doctor who specializes in Lyme, mold illness, gut, thyroid, and autoimmunity. After Dr. Miles personally struggled with chronic fatigue in his early 20s, Dr. Miles dedicated himself to figure out the root causes. He suffered with and recovered from thyroid dysfunction, autoimmunity, a gut infection, Lyme, co-infections, and mold illness. Dr. Miles and Dr. Diane Mueller co-authored How to Use Your Mind to Heal Your Mold and Lyme, as well as Stress Resilience. So you're really going to want to listen to this episode if you are curious at all about Lyme disease, maybe you know somebody who has it, or you are personally struggling and wondering if you have it. Dr. Miles is definitely an expert in this field, and we dive all into the symptoms of Lyme disease, testing, and how do you really figure out if you have Lyme disease, because it definitely comes down to a little bit more than testing. And we get into co-infections, and we get into how he works with his patients, and how that's a lot different than other practitioners, and how you can watch out for who you do want to go see and who you might want to stay away from. And of course, we get into a lot of holistic tips on healing the body, whether that's Lyme disease or other chronic illnesses. So please enjoy this conversation between myself and Dr. Miles Nichols. So I'd like to start off with your story and really what drove you to become a functional medicine doctor and got you into the specialty that you do in your practice. Yeah. So there are actually a couple of big events that happened. First, when I was growing up, my father was a medical doctor. I had, he, he was doing public health and he was doing political work. He was trying to help people get access to healthcare. He also was working to help underprivileged populations. And, and he did a lot of amazing work in the world. When I was 15, I was babysitting for a friend of my sister's and I got a call from someone at my family's church who said something's happened and your, your dad's in the hospital and, and you're going to have to go there. So I got picked up and I uh, went over there and it turned out he had had suddenly and unexpectedly a heart attack and actually passed on. I was 15 at the time. And, and that really started to, it, it, I had to go through my own inner grief process around that experience. And then also I had to start to come to terms with that he had that happen as a sudden event that we didn't see it coming, that he had top-notch medical training. He, he, he went to medical school at Stanford. He had a, a, a master's in public health from Harvard, and yet this happened. And so I really started to wonder what it was that, that caused this to happen and why that wasn't seen in the medical training that he had in the medical system at that time. And that was one. And two, I really had to deal with my own grief process. And so I really started diving into meditation and mindfulness and practices that, that I had never been exposed to up until that point in time. But I, I felt like I needed some thing different than the tools that I had at that time in order to deal with that experience. And that led me to really feel like, oh, this is actually very interesting and helpful for me and maybe other people too. And I started to tune into the connection with stress and cardiovascular disease and started to really realize that mindfulness practices, meditation practices can play a big role in that. I also reflected on the fact that my father was under a lot of stress at the time when that happened. And then Later, I discovered that in my early 20s, I was really feeling fatigued. And it wasn't 
normal fatigue. It was really definitely something wrong. And I was having a hard time getting out of bed. I was having a hard time getting to classes. I was in uh, I, w- I was in school and I, I remember had being called into the principal's office because I was late to these morning classes. And she, she said, you know, I think you're going to be a great practitioner someday. You're going to be a great doctor, but like, if you don't get through school, then you're not going to, you're not going to realize that dream. And I think something's, when I explained that I, I try to get enough sleep, I try to get to bed early. I try to wake up and I put a lot of effort and energy into it. And I'm doing really well academically in school, but just getting to that morning class and having energy throughout the day was so challenging. And she said, she said, you know, I think you have a medical issue. And I said, well, I agree, but I went to the doctor and they said that nothing's wrong and maybe you're depressed, but I didn't feel depressed. I felt happy. So it was weird. And I just, that moment really put something in me where I felt, because I was starting to question, like, am I going to be able to live my dream? Am I going to be able to help people? Am I going to be able to be a practitioner? Am I going to be able to do what I love or should I just give up? And is this something that I'm just not cut out for? And I started questioning myself. And when I saw that, because I had that mindfulness and meditation training, I saw myself thinking that and I thought, now this is not acceptable. I need to figure this out. And I, and I dedicated myself to, 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 really saying that although when I'm looking in the mirror, I'm questioning myself and my abilities and my ability to leave my, live my dreams. Like I, I, I got this clarity of this is something that I know that I will figure out. I don't know how, I don't know how long it's going to take. I don't know why it's happening. And clearly the medical system doesn't know, but I started seeking specialists. I went to a sleep specialist that, that they gave me a diagnosis and that helped me get through school, but I didn't get any kind of help really on the energy from that. And so I had to search and seek on my own and I found a good functional medicine mentor. I started researching on my own. I I was going to every practitioner. I was going to naturopaths. I was going to acupuncturists. I was going to massage. I was going to energy healers. I was going to integrative MDs. I was going to everything I could think of and not much. I mean, things would help a little here and there, but it wasn't, moving the needle, so to speak. And so I really found that eventually I learned some things around thyroid optimal markers different than the normal lab ranges. And that tuned me into that I had on that very upper range, my TSH was in the fours, which is that upper range of what conventional medicine considers normal. And I realized that that might not be optimal and that might be playing a role. And that dove me into some research related to a connection between gut issues and thyroid. So I read a connection between H. pylori and thyroid. I did a stool test. I didn't find it. I did another stool test and I found H. pylori antigen. took two stool tests to find that. And then I treated that. And then I read another connection between SIBO and uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and thyroid. I tested for that. I didn't have that. So I continued on and I kept going in this way where I would dig through research and find connected things. Eventually I found that I had these antibodies to these cells in my stomach called parietal cells. And that was causing a B12 issue and a B12 deficiency. Even when I took B12 orally, I had to get injectable B12 in order to correct that issue. And that really made a big difference in energy. And then I found chronic infections. I found that I had a multi-susceptible genetic to accumulate toxin from mold and not get rid of it appropriately. And then I found that I was living in a moldy building and a moldy home. So I had to move out of the home. I had to do a lot of research on how this toxin accumulation happens in the body and how that causes a chronic inflammatory response and how that contributes to energy issues and treating that plus some chronic infections, some Lyme co-infections, Babesia, Bartonella, uh, between all of that stuff, the thyroid, the gut, the antibodies and the stomach, the Babesia, the Bartonella, the mold toxin. Like I came out the other end of that finally feeling great and lots of energy and able to really perform at a much higher level than I was able to prior. And so that is my journey in a nutshell as to how I came out on the other end and said, I, I, I said, I don't, I don't have, I didn't have someone to guide me through this process. I had to piecemeal it together. I want to help other people 
have a step-by-step systemic approach to guiding them through this process. That is an amazing story. So thank you for sharing that. How long, how many years did that take from when you were in school and you were feeling fatigued and not making it to class to the point where you had finally figured out I have all these infections and you're basically to the point of healing. It was a bit over five years to figure all that out. And it didn't have to be, it didn't have to be that long. It, it could have been shorter. And it's not that I've stopped figuring things out. I still am monitoring all sorts of things, learning new things, figuring out additional things because I'm not satisfied feeling good. I want to feel great. And so I, now my mindset is a little more longevity focused, optimization focused. I want to see how I can maximize things. And I want to really look at that prevention piece because I don't want to end with my family dealing with the same thing that I had to deal with with my father's passing. I want to be there for my family. I want to be there for my clients. I want to be there for the people I serve in the world. I want to, I want to have an ability to really have big impact. And that means that, that, that I really need to look ahead and see years down the road in terms, and there's blood markers that are great at doing that in advanced diagnostic labs that help us see the trend. And, and I have a genetic predisposition given my father and given some other things that I know about my family towards not only thyroid issues, but cardiovascular issues. And so I need to really pay attention and be diligent about that at this point. So it's not done, but it is uh, much, it's, it's coming from a place of feeling good towards feeling great now, rather than of feeling bad towards trying to feel okay again. And that, so that bad to feel okay again is about five years, but it's a never ending journey to work towards optimal function. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't remember. I know we've talked in the past and we shared stories and they were kind of similar. Like I also, it took me five years of going to all sorts of different practitioners doing energy healing, acupuncture, naturopathic doctors. I had mold, I had candida overgrowth. I had H pylori, like all of these things. And first one, I have to say, I think that makes a really good practitioner, right? Because you're, you've been through everything and then you're super dedicated to being basically, I like to think of it as like a one-stop shop, right? Like you are probably the type of person, if you're like me, who wants to get to the bottom of everything. And you're like, no, we're going to, going to run through everything as much as possible until we figure this out for you so that you don't have to run to 20 different people over the span of five years. And Also, I I love that you shared that story and I have a similar one for just listeners to hear because people get so frustrated and they try for a little bit and they see 10 doctors, 15 doctors, they spend a couple of years and they still don't get their answer and then they start to give up. And so I just want people to hear like, it's hard sometimes to find the right person and to really figure out the root cause, but you just have to keep going and really just keep searching for what it is that is, is really going on in your body, because it is going to be unique for everybody. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. We have a a whole chapter in our book on Lyman mold about when to, when to doctor hop and when to stop, because it's, you know, how to, how to, how to give something enough time to actually give it a a fair trial is important. And the people who come in and they, you know, I I tell people, if you're going to come in and we're going to work together and you're going to leave in three months, like don't even start because we're just not going to get the level of change that we're looking for. We're at least in my clinic, we're really looking for transformation and that takes time. So it's important to know when to hop because if you're not getting results for long enough, then you might not be on the right train. And I had to go through a lot of practitioners. So they're both important and they're very interesting. It's a very interesting thing to just understand is that it takes some time, but it's also, you have to trust your intuition and move sometimes. So that's a, mm-hmm. an interesting dynamic that play. Is this in your book, how to use your mind to heal your mold and Lyme? That book? It is. Yes. Yeah. Can you summarize that chapter really quick? Like what is, when is it time to hop? I love that too. I love the name of the chapter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so part of it is just understanding what questions to ask to interview a practitioner ahead of time in order to understand if they're likely to be helpful. Do, I mean, do they do they understand root cause or are they more treating symptom? That's really important to understand because there's nothing wrong with treating symptom and it's fine for people to 
get some symptom relief while they're working on root cause. But if you're trying to go through transformational process and come out the other end feeling really good and have that be sustainable and maintainable over time, then for that purpose, you want to make sure that the practitioner you're working with understands root cause. Now, no issue with addressing symptom in the meanwhile so that you feel okay while you're going through that process because that process can take some time. But to understand how to interview a practitioner, to ask the questions of are they just replacing what's missing and giving you things to help you feel better or are they figuring out what root causes are, are, are beneath the presenting symptoms and doing advanced diagnostic lab testing to identify those root causes. So we go through things like, like, like the difference between standard line testing versus more nuanced line testing. We talk about some questions to make sure to ask related to whether a practitioner understands toxin accumulation and mold. There are some misconceptions. So we point those out and say, Hey, ask these couple of questions. And if, if the practitioner it, like gets this wrong, then they're clearly not deep in this, in this understanding of what this is. Mm. And so it's first an interview process to understand that the practitioner knows, knows what they're doing. Then it's also checking into your body, checking into your gut understanding. If you feel like the, the process and the rapport is there for you to, and the, the, the willingness to commit, you know, to a process long enough to see if you're going to get a result. And, and if you're not ready for that, it's better to look at another clinic or another process that you can commit to, because for some people, the, what we do in our clinic is just too intensive for them to commit to. So it's it maybe not the best fit. And for other people, they're ready to dive in and do that, that level of intensity of testing and, and treatment. They're ready to take a lot of things for a period of time. And then and then they really resonate. So I encourage people interview the practitioner and then check yourself to see, are you willing and ready with the process in that clinic to commit to long enough to see if you get a result. And then you have some warning signs in mind of what to look for if things aren't going well. And we give some general rule of thumb, uh, rules of thumb around like what's an appropriate detoxification reaction versus where you're feeling a little worse on the journey towards feeling better. And what's so far into feeling worse that you're actually countering the progress towards health and healing. And we help people identify and understand that. And, and if you're really beyond what would be a healthful detoxification process and you're feeling worse and the practitioner isn't editing and changing the plan promptly, then it's something to potentially look at hopping at that point. So those are some of the things that we talk about in that chapter. Okay. That sounds like everybody needs to get that book. <laughs> That's good. Okay. And you, you mentioned a little bit about Lyme testing. I want to dive into that for a second, because I know that Lyme testing can be hit or miss and there's all these different labs. So what's your thoughts on that? What do you use? What's the process like? Yeah. First, I would just want to say that Lyme is a clinical diagnosis and not a lab-based diagnosis. And that, that is important for people to understand because people want a lab that tells them yes or no, and they want it to be black and white. And I wish it could be with Lyme, but it's not. So it's a clinical diagnosis, meaning we need three things. We need a lab showing exposure. We need symptom picture that matches, and we need responsiveness to treatment, all three in order to really feel confident and congruent that Lyme is there, it's active, and it's playing a role in a person's health concerns and issues. A test alone without the symptom match or without responsiveness to treatment does not, usually often if people go down that road, it's a long journey to not feeling good because they're missing something else and it hasn't been identified. Mm -hmm. So there's conventional big labs that do ELISA testing for antibody for Lyme and that's just not great. It misses so much. There's Western blot testing that bands out these different bands, which are these different immune responses to these different parts of the protein in the Borrelia burgdorferi bacteria, which is the bacteria that causes Lyme. That's better, but it really only tests one species and it doesn't, it's not the most sensitive and specific test. So there are some bands that are specific and there are some bands that are not specific. 
And then there are CDC guidelines for how to interpret that lab, which are very strict and make for a lot of negatives that really it's weird because there are these bands that are line specific. Like we don't know anything else that causes an immune reaction on this band. And yet you need five of them on the CDC criteria in the IgG in order to get a positive result. And that's, I understand that there's a lot of political issue around Lyme diagnosis, chronic Lyme versus acute Lyme, whether it becomes a chronic infection is really debated in the conventional medical world. So I understand the politics behind it, but I feel like it's very misleading to the patients and the clients to really, they can see CDC negative on the test result, but if they come to a Lyme literate practitioner, they can say, hey, you had you had two bands that are Lyme specific. We don't know anything else that causes immune reaction. So it very clearly looks like you've been exposed and you still have the CDC negative, but we very clearly see it looks like you've been exposed. So let's see, do you have the symptom picture and the responsiveness to treatment? Mm -hmm. There are specialty labs that do a way better job that test multiple species, not just the one traditional species. They test multiple species of Borrelia bacteria and then there are also co-infections tests. So test other bacteria and parasites and things like Babesia, which is a parasite, it's a malaria-like parasite that can become chronic. Bartonella, which we know is a bacteria that can be transmitted not just from ticks, but also from dogs, from cats, from spiders, from the different insects. And that there are other ones or lichia and mycoplasma and anaplasma and rickettsia and toxoplasmosis. And it goes on and on. There are lots of infections. We could sometimes call that Lyme plus or, or Lyme and co-infections because when you look at that broader picture, you get a much better sense for what might be going on from an infectious perspective. But again, the testing mostly is about immune responsiveness and exposure. It doesn't necessarily differentiate an active infection. There's some tests that are trying to do that a little better right now. They're not perfect at this point. So mostly you get a sense for if there's been exposure and you have to try to sort out if it's active in a person's case of their symptom presentation and whether they respond to treatment. Mm -hmm. And can you give a broad overview of some Lyme symptoms and what mm -hmm. that could show up as? Yeah. So there's a lot of people who have some kind of pain and or stiffness in the body. So there can be neck stiffness is very, very common. There can be pain that moves around it. It's almost as if it's, it's sometimes there, it's sometimes not. And maybe it's in one joint and then it's in another joint. Maybe it's a lot of times in one joint, but it, it tends to be more coming and going and door moving around in terms of a pain presentation for most people. It can be constant and it can get diagnosed as fibromyalgia where there's constant significant pain all over the body. That's also, so joint pain can move around, but body pain can be constant and can be system wide. Usually there's multiple systems involved. So it's usually not just pain. There's usually either some gut issue and or some neurological issue like anxiety or depression, stressing easily. But it, so here's, here's, a, here's something that's a telltale sign. If someone says, for my life, normally in, when I was growing up, I, I was pretty calm, pretty relaxed. Like a big stressor would get to me, but a small things wouldn't get to me. And then all of a sudden it changed at some point, like in my whatever, 20s, or at some point it just changed to where even small things get to me. Even small things, I just feel like I, I overreact. I get this sense that I, I just have a hard time with managing that stress response. It's like little things stress me out way more than they used to. And if there's not some observable mental, emotional trauma that's a clear trigger for that change, often there's a physiological trigger and that is an infection or an exposure to toxin. There's this, there's this very deeply researched psycho, it, it, they call it a, a pediatric acute onset, autoimmune neuropsychiatric syndrome. It's this mouthful, but it's, and it's not pediatric implies kids, but it's anyone. 
And we know now that there's Borrelia burgdorferi, which causes Lyme, there's Bartonella, there are certain mold toxins, there's Epstein-Barr virus, which causes mono, there's a few others that also have been researched to trigger an immune response where the immune system thinks that protein that it's attacking of the pathogen just happens to look a lot like dopamine receptors in the brain, tubulin receptors in the brain. And we see this, what we call a cross-reactive molecular mimicry process where the immune system attacks self and it attacks brain receptor sites. And then we see this either hyper-excitable or hypo-excitable. So either too much or too little Mm -hmm. brain excitation to where we get either this very anxious presentation or this very depressed presentation or this very quick to, to, to react to stress. And that's uncharacteristic of the person's personality. It changes. And if that's changed, then we very clearly often see that there's an infectious or a toxin-based cause to that change. And very frequently it's Lyme. So in the extreme cases, the neurologic symptoms can become as, as severe as seizures or the immune system can become as dysregulated as to produce significant autoimmunity like MS, multiple sclerosis, or can be other autoimmune like thyroid autoimmunity. We know there's a, there's a research study that looks at a segment of the genetic code of Lyme and it looks a whole lot like thyroid tissue. And so the immune system just is like is thinking that it's attacking that line protein, which it is, but it's also attacking that thyroid tissue. And so there's this very clear link with thyroid autoimmunity. There's a very clear link with MS and there's more than likely additional research that's going to come in linking a whole lot of autoimmune conditions to chronic infection and or toxin accumulation. So if there's any autoimmunity, if there's body pain, if there's joint pain that moves around, if there's neck stiffness, if there's cognitive issues, if there's depression or anxiety, quick to have stress, if there are migraine headaches or other even severe cognitive issues like seizures without a, a clear other cause of like a brain injury or a, a clear emotional trauma or something clear cause. If there's a multiple systems involved, so maybe there's also gut issues, maybe there's also some uh, chronic fatigue is very, very common. And so if we see multi-systems involvement, if we're seeing someone who has a diagnosis like fibromyalgia or depression or anxiety that's not historic and and personality-based, if we see a pain presentation that's not easily explained by an injury, then all these things are pointers that we may have an infection like Lyme. Mm, okay. When it can attack the brain receptor sites, is that, is there a test that you can run to look at the brain? Yeah, there is a test. It's, so there are a couple tests. The Cunningham panel is the primary test that, that is used for looking at dopamine receptors, tubulin receptors. Um, it's a five marker panel. It's, it's a little bit expensive. So we don't run it very often because it doesn't necessarily change the treatment and the root cause is still the same, but it's nice for people who have that as a, the, if the, if the neurologic symptoms are the primary concern, then it's a nice panel to run, to look at. Mm-hmm. There's also a, a NeuroZoomer plus by vibrant wellness that does some, uh, some of those markers, not all of them, but you do get some dopamine receptor antibodies on that. And so you get, you get a little bit of a a look at that through that panel as well. Got it. So what are the steps to addressing Lyme disease with your patients? So first we're looking for the degree to which it seems like Lyme is a primary root cause. And we're really are very rarely seeing one root cause. Like it's, it's easy for people to want to find that smoking gun. They want to see, oh, it's this one thing that's causing my issues. There are plenty of people who walk around with Lyme and they're fine. They they don't have symptom picture. There are people who are absolutely debilitated by Lyme. And there's probably three or four or five other root causes stacking together. We 
our bodies are resilient. They can withstand a lot. There's something called allostatic load. And that's a concept where there's a load of stuff that you can handle and not be chronically ill. And then you exceed that load and you go beyond what you can handle. And then it use the body dysregulates, becomes chronically inflamed. You start to see chronic illness and chronic symptom pictures emerge. And so usually when we test for and look at treatment for Lyme, we're looking at it in the context of also looking at gut dysfunction, methylation, toxin accumulation, mitochondrial function. Uh, we're looking at a lot of different areas. We're looking at hormones. We're looking at, at, at many different areas in the body in order to understand the extent of the dysregulation and the variables that are contributing to that dysregulation. And usually the people who treat Lyme and Lyme only do not get great results, unfortunately. If people treat Lyme together with also addressing nutrient deficiencies, also addressing gut dysfunction, also addressing methylation issues if present, also addressing cellular issues, also looking at hormone balance, then we start to see really great results. So when we do testing for Lyme, it's in the context of a bigger picture. And that bigger picture involves looking at, by the time people come to our practice, usually they've been to five or six other practices. So they've done some, you know, they're off a standard American diet. They've been eating well for a long time. They've been probably seeing other practitioners. They've probably done two or three gut protocols, but maybe their gut's still dysregulated. Why is that happening? And they are sometimes already diagnosed with Lyme and sometimes not. And we're doing that diagnosis. Sometimes it's a mystery. No one's been able to figure out what's going on. So by the time people come to us, it's really this interesting puzzle of looking for the pieces that have been missed and the pieces that have been addressed but haphazardly not together cohesively in a step-by-step -step process with the elements that are needed in order to get the results. And there's also an emphasis on the practices, not just the, the, the lab testing and the supplementation and the diet and the exercise, but also other practices that we find to be very, very helpful and key for people to get results. Brain retraining practices, breath work, specific breath work practices that have been researched for toxin accumulation, for immune system regulation. And it usually takes several things stacked together to drop that allostatic load enough for someone to feel better. So the step-by-step -step process involves first a case history, understanding where a person's been, where they are, where they'd like to be, what they've tried, what's worked, what hasn't worked, and really understanding that person and where they're at and what their things that they are, are, are really starting to understand that they're responding or not responding to. And then doing a comprehensive assessment with labs, looking at multiple different root cause issues, identifying which seem to be the main ones and the biggest leverage points, and then putting together a plan that step-by-step, step, we might address one or two or maybe three root causes at a time, but we don't address everything all at once. So we might address, we might layer the treatment. We might say, okay, it's, it, it, it's looking like, like Lyme and gut dysfunction are the top two priorities right now. So let's address those two first. And then we also see there's a toxin accumulation and let's do that next after the, the gut treatment's a little quicker. So once that one ends, then we'll do this. And we, we put together this, this plan in this sequence, we give people phases of treatment where we're removing the toxin and then we're building up the body's ability to um, detoxify. And then we're rebuilding some of the damage that was done to the body in the time that it was exposed to the toxin. And we're educating about exposure and then we're doing things for the immune system. And they, all this, we have to, we, we try to make it as simple and easy to understand for people. We say, okay, here are our two top priorities that we're treating right now. We're going to do these two after 60 days, we're going to finish this one and do this other one. And this other one is going to stay a little longer. And we give this sense for 
what phase are you in? What phase are you going towards? And that can be different for the different things we're treating. And so, so we have a process laid out for durations of protocols, transitions between phases, and then a process by which to continually be tracking certain lab markers and certain subjective questionnaires, as well as a person reporting in on their experience in order to get a bigger picture for how progress is happening over time. Because sometimes the, the symptom change doesn't happen until later sometimes. So we wanna see, are, are the labs improving? And if we do a symptom-based questionnaire, does that look like it's improving? Even if the person doesn't feel dramatically better, we know we're on the right track, but if we're not on the right track and those things are getting worse, we wanna make a change. And we wanna change and tweak and hone and refine that protocol and say, hey, you know, we thought that infection first was a little better idea, but now actually for you, maybe it's a going toxin first, hold off on the infection. You know, until a little bit later, we're going to address this first, and then we're going to go back to that. And then we start to see things improve. And then, so it's this, it's a dance. It's a dance of, of feet. It, the initial, I tell people, I'm, I'm rarely going to get it right on the first try. Like we're going to, we're going to get a lot of data and do our best to figure out what's going on. We'll have a good sense for what's going on. But the first treatment is, you know, sometimes it's spot on very rarely, <laughs> often we need to tweak and edit and hone and refine it in order to get it to where we're seeing the trajectory towards wellness that we're wanting to see. And sometimes that takes a few months. Sometimes it takes half a year. Sometimes it takes a full year to really get into that trajectory. And so that's a conversation I have with people to, to help make sure they're prepared for that process to, and that timing and the way that, that we're going to be checking in and working on things. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You're talking to somebody who practices in a similar way. So I'm like, yeah, I love it. It all makes yeah. sense. But it sounds like what you're saying is, is the way that other people are doing it wrong is, well, I don't want to say that, but you know, when it comes to treating these chronic illnesses and Lyme and other issues, they are giving just, they're kind of treating the symptoms or that, that one specific diagnosis. Right. And so they're maybe giving them a huge supplement protocol and sending them on their way. But what you do is brain retraining, breath work, you know, talking about toxins, like being very strategic with things, tweaking, adjusting. It takes a lot more work than just saying, reading a piece of paper and then saying, okay, you have Lyme or you have this, go take these supplements for three to six months and that's it. So yeah, definitely more yeah. complex. <laughs> even, even within something like breath work that I give a very, very different practice, to different people, depending on what's going on. And sometimes that practice is spot on and sometimes we change it too. So there's within each little part of that, there's a, a number of variables, but, but yes, we do have these, we, we have these five pillars within the practices part of the, the treatment. And then we have these phases within the, the root causes for the functional part. And then we have phases within those root cause treatments. And the other mistake that I see in addition to just honing too deeply on one thing is I also see people who get put on, maybe there's an analysis of multiple things and a bigger picture is understood, but they get put on this big protocol and then they don't, there aren't the, they haven't picked the, these are the, the, the three tracking markers that are going to assess our progress. And this is the questionnaire that we're doing on this regular of a basis in order to assess subjectively. We want, we want an objective and an, a subjective assessment along the way. And if we don't have both of those, we can really, I find people just be, they come in and they say, oh, I've been on this for, you know, two years. And I say, well, what, what tracking markers have you been doing? What questionnaires have you been doing? They're like tracking markers, questionnaires, huh? Like I've just been on this protocol. And so, you know, and then uh, maybe I go in and I, I say what I'm feeling and then maybe there's a little bit of a change here and there, but it's not, there's not enough assessment along the way of whether things are going in the direction and to the degree that that, that would be indicative that there is progress happening that's significant enough to, to move a person towards their health goals. And so I see that a lot too. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think I, I also use questionnaires every couple of months with my clients. And I think it's so important, not only obviously to see if we're moving in the right direction, but also for them, for their mental clarity that, oh, I am getting better because sometimes you don't even realize how far you've moved. And then you look at a questionnaire or a tracker a few months later and it's, you know, 50% or even if it's just 20 to 10, even if it's just 10% better, the client or the patient is like, oh, wow, that's so exciting. I made improvements, even though maybe it didn't seem that drastic. It really has been. So I think it's beneficial for both people to be doing that. Yeah. There's a phenomena, which is a healthful phenomena, which is people get amnesia for their old problems, right? You forget what you, <laughs> what problems you had and that's a good thing, but, but from the perspective of healing and tracking your healing, it's not so great where I, I remember the day where someone came in and they're like, oh, things aren't going well. I'm just still, I'm like really feeling this um, issue with my stomach is pretty significant. And I, I just feel like I'm frustrated. Things aren't progressing. And, and I said, well, how are the, how are the migraines? And they said, what migraines? And, and I said, well, that was the, the primary reason why you came in was migraines. Remember? And they're like, oh Yeah. It was, I, I haven't had one of those in like three months. <laughs> so sometimes it's just like the mind goes on to the next thing and it's aware of the next problem. And that's part of the mind training too, is not only, not only to have an assessment tool to understand the progress, but also to help the mind to be able to understand how you relate to the problems that are going on in your life or the struggles that you're having is very important for how treatment progresses. Like if someone truly doesn't believe that they deserve to get well, it's it the process is going to get sabotaged at some point. And if mm -hmm. someone overly externalizes their locus of control, like if they say, oh, the line made me tired today, and they're really putting the the control on that diagnostic label and they're they're releasing their power to it. Now that's it's tricky because Lyme can cause fatigue. So it's not that Lyme isn't causing fatigue and it's not that someone should try to mentally override the fact that they have power over whether they're fatigued or not. No, if you're fatigued, you're fatigued, accept that, embrace it, lean into it, be okay with that. But where you relate to that fatigue from, like if that relation to that fatigue is completely externalized, and there's no power even to relate to that fatigue from a place of feeling a sense of acceptance and embrace about what is as it is without passively resigning to it, still being active and taking action. It's very, very different experience for people than if they're actively resisting and giving their power away and feeling defeated and a victim. Like if, if, if someone's feeling defeated and a victim of the diagnosis, until we, we, we change that mindset, there's very little I can do mm -hmm. because it's, it's by taking power back for at least the way you relate to what your current physical circumstances to how that infection might be impacting your physiology and holding it a little more loosely. Like we, we talk about in our clinic, open curiosity, like hold that diagnostic label with open curiosity. Don't make it so solid that it has so much control over your life, it might be causing fatigue legitimately. It might hold that with open curiosity and take the power for how you relate to that fatigue, how you relate to that diagnostic label, take that power in your own hands and work on that inside of yourself. Like that really can make a huge difference in the trajectory towards healing. Yes. I tell my clients, we have to get them from victim to survivor to thriver, right? Because I too, when I was really sick, there was a, I was in that victim mindset where it was like, oh, I'm going to be sick all the time. I have a chronic illness. Now I have an autoimmune disease. This is my life, right? And you get stuck in that cycle. And I was reading some holistic book, right? And I started getting into meditation and affirmations and all of these things and got into the more spiritual realm. And then I, I, I realized that. And I was like, oh, I'm telling myself consistently that I am sick. So let me switch that. Let me just switch that mindset and really started working on that. And it was a huge shift 
positively in my health and was able to finally allow me to really push through. So I can't end the podcast without us talking a little bit deeper on this brain retraining and the breath work. I really want to make sure we get this in. So like, are you simply just educating people and saying what you just said, or is there a very specific protocol or or things that they do, tangible things that they do at home or, or on their own to retrain their brain? Yeah, brain retraining definitely has specific techniques and practices. We educate on the principles of mind through which the limbic system gets dysregulated, through which the the vagal system and the the, the nervous system can become out of balance. We, we educate on that, like the physiology of trauma, the physiology of how the nervous system can become chronically dysregulated in a way that can contribute to worsened outcomes for the whole health picture. And so we give principles of mind, these principles of mind that explain why the research on gratitude shows benefit and why the research on social media shows detriment to people's perceived happiness and their and, and their ability to feel good about themselves. We talk about the the, the, the reasons, uh, there's lots of research and that's very easy, but the, the, the principles of mind, the reasons by which that research operates is not well fleshed out or talked about. So we go through principles of mind so that people understand how and why the mind is involved in either activating their limbic system and a dysregulated nervous system response or helping to calm and balance their nervous system response. And then we go through specific practices that people can do based on those principles of mind in order to start to desensitize some of the, it it really is on the spectrum of trauma, even if it's not overt trauma, it's just in the spectrum of, of if, if you've been like I was through the medical system and they told you nothing's wrong and you're depressed, like that's traumatic a little bit. Like there's this Mm -hmm. sense of like, like starting to dismiss myself, starting to question myself, starting to think is something wrong with me, starting to think, am I going to be able to heal? Started that, that thought process, like, unfortunately, which is supported by the system of medicine in some cases and not, not all cases, medicine's great in some ways, but it's sometimes supports this, 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 inner process of dysregulated limbic system response to where a person starts to feel really bad internally about themselves, their ability to heal, their ability to be whole inside, their ability to function in the world, their ability to have a quality of life that's helpful and meaningful to them. And sometimes it does get into feeling that they don't deserve to get well, feeling that they are a victim and it gets into that. So we give these specific practices where people can start to retrain the brain in order to make a new kind of a story, an internal story around those, because mind's always making stories. And so if we can make a new story about the things that have become dysregulated internally, then that can be helpful. So one, one simple practice that I give people is I, I, I have people say, even though I blank, so whenever a person notices a, a subtle deflation inside, a subtle feeling off, feeling frustrated, feeling anxious, feeling just off inside somehow, then I have them first you need to cultivate enough self-awareness to be aware of what the thought process behind that is. But even if you just tune into the body feeling, you can already do this. You can say, even though I am feeling this sense of anxiety in the body. I am so grateful that blank. And so it's this, even though I blank, I'm so grateful that I have the self-awareness to even realize that there is this in the body so that I can begin to work on this. Like, I'm so grateful that, cause some people don't even have that awareness and they're stuck in this feeling without even recognizing what it is and that there can be a relating to it from a different place. And I'm so grateful that I have the self-awareness. That's a beginning, that's an entry, that's starting to create some space. So even though I'm feeling anxious, I'm so grateful that I have the awareness of that sensation of anxiety in the body. And that's an opening and that's a space and that's an entry for me. So it takes in it rather than the story being, 
I feel so anxious. This is happening to me again. Why is it happening? I'm trying so hard. I'm doing all this stuff. All these other people that I see aren't doing all this stuff. Mm. Why are they out drinking and they're feeling okay? And I'm not drinking at all. And I have my dietary and it just goes into <laughs> feeling worse and worse and worse and worse. <laughs> yep. So to, to, to step back, to take a moment, to tune into the physiologic sensation, what's going on to say, even though I'm experiencing this physiological sensation, I am so grateful that and finding some aspect within that, that, you know, there are other people who have it worse there. I'm not debilitated. I'm not bedridden. I'm, I'm doing okay. Like I'm at least able to, to, to have this self-awareness. I'm at least able to do this thing that I love in my life that I still can do. And that kind of a process, it's, it's a small thing, but it's additive and build. If you, if you can build that habit, those small habits, Mm-hmm. And, and do that on the fly day to day throughout the day it builds into grateful for life eventually it's grateful for for life and life experience and even the challenges and the struggles because they offer opportunities to grow and it just becomes this sense of wow life is magical again and and I feel purpose again and but it doesn't go there immediately that's that's the sort of end goal but if you can start to do even though I blink I am so grateful that blink then that can start to build that bridge towards that outcome of eventually an attitude and a worldview that becomes supportive of health and well-being. Yeah. I love that. And that's why I've, I've always been a really big proponent of even gratitude journaling and really actually sitting and feeling the gratitude and, and really honing in on that feeling and to elevate your internal energy level, right? Even if you are initially feeling pretty crappy. And then over time it does rewire your brain. And then it, like you said, it, it seems crazy to say it if you've never done it. And if you're in that dark place, but once you start trying it and practicing it and believing it and over time, you can start to have more, more positivity, more gratitude, just kind of coming up naturally in your thought patterns. So, and okay. We really only have a couple minutes left, but what kind of breath work are you using? I have to know. <laughs> yeah. And before I dive into that, I do want to tell people like, it's not your fault. If you're in a bad place mentally, mm-hmm. like there are physiological root causes for dysregulating that limbic response, that, that vagus nerve for being able to manage the nervous system. Like it's not, it's not your fault that you got here. Like that, right. that's really important. Like don't beat yourself up or blame or criticize yourself for having gotten into this inner mess of dysregulated nervous system response and, and uh, an attitude about life and, and negative thinking. I mean, some people can get into this thing where it's like, oh, I should be thinking, I should be this, I should be, I should have, and set that all aside. Just forgive the past because, you know, it, it is what it is. There are causes, it's not your fault. Just, you know, what, what you have the ability to do, the power to do is to, to look at right now, how are you related to your present experience, your past experience, what's happening in your mind, stories in your mind, your ideas about the future, what, how you relate to those things is where you have the power. So that's where you work, not on how, what you should have done in the past or, you know, what you like to have done differently. That that's different. Just make sure that I want to have people understand it's not your fault and you start where you are. And it's, uh, there is a step-by-step process to get to a place that's, that's feeling much better. So with that, with breath work, so we do almost opposite ends of the spectrum on breath work. There's a lot of research on the, uh, uh, something called the Wuteko method, which is a, a very subtle, soft, slow kind of breath work that's emphasizing breathing through the nose only. It's reducing the volume of air that's going through the lung, which seems counterintuitive to people. People think, oh, I should be taking deep breaths all the time. It's not really. Actually, if you reduce breathing, you actually increase carbon dioxide in the blood. And that carbon dioxide has the ability to get oxygen into tissue better. It regulates blood pressure. It impacts nitric oxide and cardiovascular function. It helps with blood pressure regulation, nervous system regulation. So there's a lot of misconceptions about breathing. So we, we have a practice on that end of the spectrum. And then we have a practice that's very intense and spiritual. And it's also researched for they took this dead E. coli and inject it direct into the bloodstream. And these people who do this particular breathing technique, it, when, when you inject dead E. coli, dead E. coli have lipopolysaccharide or LPS in the cell wall. And that is what's considered an endotoxin. It makes you sick. You just feel awful. 
feel awful for like three hours. They've done this one over a thousand people and they just feel awful. And they're like flu-like and headachey and really in a bad way, nauseous and, and for a few hours until their body clears that endotoxin. The people who did this breathing technique, they didn't have any of that symptom. And they looked at their blood and they looked in, and saw that interestingly, this breathing technique was reducing a bunch of inflammatory markers that were getting really high in the non-breathers in the control group. And it was increasing anti-inflammatory markers. And it, it, it also increased adrenaline, but not cortisol. Adrenaline's like that, 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 that mounting of a, a, an adrenal response to stress response. Like when you get cut off that like wave, that rush of energy that comes in is that adrenaline. And then cortisol is more of that like amped anxious over a long period of time. So the adrenaline went hugely up and then back down. The cortisol was not any more than controls, actually a little less than and dropped a little quicker than controls. So the breathers were able to mount what we would consider to be an archetypal healthful stress response. Like what we, what you want to do if someone cuts you off is get that adrenaline rush, take action immediately, become safe, and then let that calm down and don't carry it with you for the rest of the day. And don't let your cortisol become chronically elevated or chronically deficient as a result. And that's what we saw in this study where they were injected with endotoxin while doing the breathing. They mounted this intense and incredible adrenaline response, decreased inflammatory markers, increased anti-inflammatory markers. And so there's that, that breathing, it's, it's kind of intense and, and it's, it's, it's not a good fit for everyone if they're really depleted with Lyme. Um, but, but it is very powerful and it's very, it can help people get into an altered state too, and have these interesting kinds of emotional healing experiences as well. And that's, that's through the Wim Hof, it's called Wim Hof breathing, um, mm -hmm. through the Wim Hof method. I have so many other questions we didn't get to, but that's okay. I always ask what is one thing that you could give our listeners to take action on this week? that would help them live a healthier, happier life? One thing to take action on this week. So I just, I just had a webinar right before this on the theme of embrace mm -hmm. and embrace is it. So there's acceptance and accepting what is, is great, but embrace is a little more active. There's this sense. Not only are you accepting what is, there's a embrace me. It's like accepting with open arms. And it's like, it's like leaning into and, and, and if there's an ability to embrace challenge and struggle rather than if there's resistance, embrace the resistance. It's not like you're trying not to resist or push away resistance. It's, it's you're embracing what is the way you relate to your experience is a, is a, a, a yes. It's, it's <laughs> yes. I, my experience. Yes. And it's an unconditional positive regard for what is, as it is active open arms inviting and embracing whatever challenge arises whatever comes your way that's not a condoning it's not a passive acceptance it's not uh allowing something to be without taking action when action is needed it's it's it, you still set boundaries you still say no you still do what you need to do in order to move towards what you know is right and and good and, and loving in the world it's, it's how you relate to the experience from. And so what I encourage people this week to do is to see if you can, see if you can ask yourself the question, hold the inquiry, ask yourself the question, what would it be like if I were to be able to just a little bit more embrace myself, embrace some challenges and struggles that are going on for me, embrace the people who I'm in relationship with, embrace my job? What would that be like? What would that feel like? And how would my life be different? Just contemplate that all bit. So even if you're nowhere, you feel like you're nowhere close to embrace, that doesn't matter. Just contemplate, what would it be like to just embrace a little bit more my experience, even embrace my illness, even embrace the difficult situations that are happening in my body? What would it be like if I were to be able to do that? So uh, I encourage people to contemplate that this week. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. And it reminds me of what you were talking about a few minutes ago with it's like, yes, I am sick and I'm grateful 
that I have all these other things going on in my life and I'm working on it. So just really being accepting and embracing that. I think that's a, a wonderful tip and applying that to all aspects of life. So thank yeah. you for taking time to chat today. This is a really great conversation. If you want to share any, any links that like where people can reach out to you. Um, I actually don't know if people can work with you via telemedicine or if it's just at your clinic. So you can say that and, and how they can reach out or work with you too. Yeah, we do work with people all across the U S they can work virtually with us. Um, we work to some extent internationally, although there are some limitations with international work, U S work is very, um, across the U S is, is pretty straightforward for our clinic. So people can definitely contact medicine with heart clinic and medicinewithheart.com is the website. And there's an ability to book a free discovery consultation with one of our staff to talk a little bit about with them, what it looks like to get started with a process of care in the clinic. And for practitioners who want to learn more about functional medicine, there's also a clinician training program called the Medicine with Heart Institute at mindbodyfunctionalmedicine.com. So for people who want to learn how to run and interpret labs in a mind-body-based approach to functional medicine, including chronic complex issues like Lyme and mold, then mindbodyfunctionalmedicine.com is where information is about our clinician training program. And there's also the ability for clinicians and people who are working with clients to book a call there and chat with us about that program as well. Okay. Amazing. And then we'll put the links to all of that stuff in the show notes. So and there's you. a great free blog also on the website. So if you're not looking for care, but you just want some information, then mm -hmm. also medicine with heart has a great blog, medicinewithheart.com, great blog. And you can uh, get some interesting information about new and upcoming therapies, interventions, things that are, that, that we're looking forward to that we've discovered in research. And so feel free to also just uh, peruse the informational aspect as well. So if you enjoyed this episode with Miles and I, please leave a comment, rating, or share it with a friend who needs to hear this information because comments and ratings really help this show so that more people will listen and I can continue to help other people level up their health and entire life holistically. So thank you so much for listening and keep striving to become your healthiest, happiest self.